Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and this week's show is brought to you by Elastic Security and Elastic's Jake King will be along in this week's sponsor interview a little bit later on. Jake was the founder of CMD Security, which was acquired by Elastic a while back. And he's joining us to talk through the company's latest threat report. And given Jake is a Linux guy, we kind of zero in on the Linux side of the report. And uh, yeah, it's a fun chat. Uh, and uh, I think the takeaway is there are there are still a lot of blind spots when it comes to monitoring the integrity of Linux systems. You know, mostly around things like the blinky light boxes people have in their environments that that run uh, Linux, also IoT, etc. Uh, so that chat is coming up later. But first off, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with Adam Boileau. But Adam, just before we get going, uh, I'd like to congratulate InfoSec legend David Litchfield for taking a gold medal at the Commonwealth Powerlifting Federation Championships in uh, New Zealand. Nicely done, mate. Uh, did you did you happen to see that on your socials? I, I did. I did. Uh, I mean, David's been lifting for, for a long time and he's clearly very, very good at it. So, yes, good job. Yeah, um, He's strong, strong since. like ox. <laughs> yes, exactly. And also can wreck all your computers. So it's a great combination. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So congratulations uh, to, to Dave. Uh, but yeah, let's get into the news now. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting week because it's post Thanksgiving, which means the volume of news has been down a little bit, but there's still actually some really interesting stuff to talk through. And certainly a theme has emerged in the, in the news stories that I've paid attention to this week, and that's around supply chain, right? Uh, so let's get into it with this first story. Uh, Risky Biz News covered covered this uh, in our newsletters, uh, but the British government has essentially banned Hikvision cameras and Chinese surveillance cameras from uh, government facilities, right? So you cannot install uh, a lot of these Chinese security cameras in uh, government buildings now. And furthermore, they're actually telling these government departments to isolate these cameras from uh you know, proper core networks, right? So this is a, you know, this is a reasonably significant move, I think. Yes, I mean, uh, organisations like Hikvision and Dahua are ones that you see a lot. I mean, in government places and and just in regular commercial use all over the all over the world. Uh, and so this is a pretty significant step. And also, I thought it was interesting because so this came out of. Um, uh, the British government cabinet secretary put out a statement about you know the work they've been doing, uh, and rather than just specifically naming companies like Hikvision and Dahua, they also said all cameras produced by companies subject to the national intelligence law of the PRC, which was a, a law from 2017, kind of requires Chinese companies to you know comply with obligations put on them by the Chinese for in Chinese government for you know national security reasons and to assist etc. Um, and that's you know we had talked about that law at the time you know back then. But seeing that cited as a reference and seeing it like generally apply to Chinese entities subject to it rather than specific uh, organizations, I think that's an interesting development. See that yeah. called out? Well, it is. I mean, it's it's having a law that says the government can tell you to do anything it wants for any reason, right? Like uh, it's gonna make it's gonna make the countries that are, you know not so not such fans of uh, Chinese government policy and 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 China's Chinese geopolitical policy maybe a little bit nervous and. Um, you know, in some ways, it's surprising that it's taken this long. I mean, yeah, I am surprised it's taken this long. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, we often talk about you know, the plight of, you know, having, you know, mobile networks made by Huawei and, you know, having cameras made by Hikvision and what that means for us. 
and, you know, for us, the, the Western countries. But on the other hand, you know, I feel bad for everybody else that's stuck on, you know, Office, Microsoft Office or, you know, Google Android or Windows, you know, all the other countries that use Western tech are probably going to be looking at this and going, well, we, we have the same problem but worse. So you can kind of... Well, but I mean, this idea that an American intelligence agency is just going to go to Microsoft and say, stick a backdoor in office. Like, I just, I just don't think that's how our system really works, Adam. And that's, yeah, the, mean, po- and that's the point, you know? Yeah, and well, that's how our system works now, right? And, but we are still kind of believers in globalization and in, in norms. And if we end up in a shooting war with China, do you think that's going to be off the table? Like, if they go into Taiwan, do you think pushing Trojan Windows updates to all the windows in China, like, do you think that's going to be off the table? If we're... Look, I, 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 I think that's a I think that's a good question, but I think it would take a lot. I mean, I think so too. You know, it, it would take a lot to get the United States to reverse its thinking around this stuff. I think, but you're right. I mean, deglobalization, particularly in technology right now, is a trend. Yes. So you know, maybe, but I. Um, I don't know. God damn you. <laughs> you know, on a 10-year, on a, on a 15, 20-year timescale, how unthinkable is it, right? And if you're buying yeah. infrastructure now that's going to have to last 20 years, Do like you realise you just, you just referred to Microsoft Word as infrastructure? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I, look I, I think you make a really good point. Um, and I think this is one of those things that's driving this. Uh, you know, we used to call it balkanization. But I think really deglobalization is a word now. And, and we are seeing things split off into the liberal bloc countries and illiberal bloc countries. And I think, yeah, it's going to suck for the illiberal bloc uh, countries because their tech kind of sucks, really, yes. by comparison. Um, you know, it, it turns out that, you know, us nerds being free lets us make cool stuff, I guess. I don't know whether it's all good stuff, but, um, you know, well, I think China's, Bitcoin, China's but, getting there. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're starting to actually develop some decent stuff these days. But I listened to a really interesting podcast from Medusa uh, about the trouble that Russian airlines are facing now because of sanctions. This is relevant, I think, to, to what mm. we're discussing. I think the interesting thing was that, you know, the, the Soviet Union did have the ability to manufacture aircraft, Right. But it was this, you know, as soon as the wall came down and Russia was sort of more integrated into, into the world, it didn't make sense for the Soviet era airplane manufacturing to really continue because it just wasn't as good uh, as, as what was being produced in the West, which is why gradually Russia, uh, Russia's skies filled up with Boeing and Airbus products, right? Which is now actually a, a pretty serious problem for them. So I think we've sort of seen this thing before where you had an illiberal block essentially duplicating a technology that existed in the West. In this case, you know, I'm talking about airliners. And in that case, the result wasn't that great. It couldn't survive, couldn't survive contact with, uh, with Western technology. But that doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. Uh, yes, yeah, you're certainly right. I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm reminded of the example of, of, of the situation Iran found itself in, you know, in the, in the 70s, uh, you know, of having to maintain planes. You look at, you know, the history of, of airline safety in Iran, it's not super great because of the, the challenges of doing that kind of maintenance. And, you know, if I was an airline boss in Russia right now, I would be certainly feeling that example at the present. Um, yeah. And seeing that play out in the technology world, like so much faster, you think how long it takes, an, you know, an aircraft to kind of bit rot to the point where you can't fly it anymore. It's much faster with tech, you know, when, especially when everyone's, you know, DevOpsy and continuously integrating and cloudy. I mean, ugh. 
I don't know. Like, what would you even do if you're entirely AWS hosted, operating out of Russia? You know, I mean. Well, I mean, there are alternatives there, right? So you've got Chinese tech, which is yes. You know, you've you've got Alibaba Cloud and and whatnot, right? So there are options there, but I think there's just so much. It's such a well developed software ecosystem in the West that trying to replace all of it. But then again, I mean, maybe that's an advantage. You just you just recreate the bits that you want to keep, you know, and so wave goodbye to that legacy. You know, let that rowboat sink because we're getting a new yacht. <laughs> yeah, maybe, <laughs> you know? maybe you know. So um, let's see. But meanwhile, we should just you know going back to the topic at hand. Uh, the United States has actually banned. You know, they've gone a step further, and this this news comes to us also this week they've got a step further and actually banned the import of a lot of these uh, Chinese cameras right yes the Federal Communications Commission has voted to expand its ban uh, on Chinese equipment you know this is beyond you know Huawei and ZTE uh, to include Hikvision and Dahua uh, as well as the radio manufacturer Hytera um, for many you know basically the same reasons as the UK uh, and so you know, I can imagine if you're Australia or you're New Zealand, you know, the five eyes countries, you're looking at this going, yeah, we're probably we're going to have to follow suit. Um, so I'd be interested to see what the Australian government has to say, uh, you know, in, in the next little while about that as well. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, a pretty clear, to me, looks like a pretty clear kind of continuation of, of the path we're seeing where deglobalization and especially of Chinese tech companies is a thing that's being entrenched into, you know, procurement rules for government entities, for private organizations. And, you know, that's going to flow onwards much like it did with uh, Huawei and ZTE. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you wonder why such a, you know, seemingly coordinated action is happening now. I mean, it could be that there's some specific intelligence that we don't know about, but I think it's more likely that they're just, you know, kind of getting around to it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, certainly IP cameras are a pretty low-hanging fruit because they tend to be on, you know, more exposed on the network than they need to be. They're cheap, you know, they're poorly maintained, they're hard to update, they are great intelligence targets. If you can get there, they're great for pivoting onwards. Like, they're a pretty natural, uh, a natural kind of weak point in many organizations. So I can see why they're being prioritized over, say, you know, stuff that's right in the middle of the infrastructure uh, but either way you know if you look look around all listeners please look around you know where you are your office your home wherever it is and if you see a Hikvision camera then maybe uh, you know have some thoughts have some thoughts yes great actionable information <laughs> from Risky Biz always, always. <laughs> um, now let's talk about the BOA web server this is a discontinued web server which is full of bugs and apparently it's everywhere. So we got a story here from Jonathan Grieg over at The Record, which is looking at a, well, they've called it an attack on in the Indian power grid, but I think you and I were talking about this just before we got recording and it looks like maybe, you know, when they say an attack against the grid, they mean some pre-positioning behavior or whatever. But it looks like some, yeah, some Chinese crews have been getting all up in power grid adjacent systems by exploiting these uh, IoT vulnerabilities that are present in this BOA web server, which is just licensed through so many SDKs and third-party things that it's still everywhere, even though it was discontinued in 2005, right? So this is just one of those stories that I think, you know, highlights these supply chain issues that we're now grappling with, which aren't just present in NPM or Node.js, right? Like this, this is a big problem. And I think this story really highlights that. Yeah, I mean, I have seen a great many BOA web servers in my time um, and, you know, ARB file read uh, in BOA so you can pull a password file so you can log into some IoT device. You know, that's a that's a pretty good thing that will get you a lot of shells. Um, and yeah, the, you know, four embedded systems, it, it, you know, I would say most embedded systems that I have seen that have a web server, it tends to be BOA. 
Um, so mm. it's really very, very much everywhere. Go plug that into Showdown, you'll find a great many. So this report from Recorded Future looks into some attacks uh, in one of the areas of India near the kind of contested border with China, um, something like 11 or 12 different like power distribution centers and other you know like dispatch centers things that carry out grid operations and they've tied this through you know some of the tdps to an earlier campaign from 2021 which also was targeting power grids uh, and power grid resources uh, in the rest of india um and there are some you know signs that point to chinese state in terms of of the tdps so you can certainly understand why um, you know, pre-positioning yourself, getting all the shells you need. Uh, and this is once again, IP cameras, DVRs, you know, embedded systems that are, you know, in those facilities. It's a great place to stage yourself in. Um, so not at all surprised. It's a little bit muddied, though, because we also see plenty of other people hacking IoT devices and running botnets and, and proxy networks and all sorts of things. So it's a little hard to tell, like, which is the Chinese state actors and which is just the rest of the internet hacking every embedded system. But either way, probably not what you want in your power grid. I mean, I remember when, uh, you know, the rise of IoT was happening and everyone's like, they're going to get hacked imminently, you know, this is going to be a huge problem. And, you know, it took a while, but I sort of feel like, well, here we are. I think a lot of the advice from the security industry back then was that some thought should be put onto into like how these things should be architected, like don't attach them to your core network, like the British just told their government departments, you know, not everyone listened back then. And that's why we've got this issue. But I'm guessing plenty of people did. Yeah, I mean, yes, and certainly for th for things like cameras and um, and you know other surveillance systems, having those on separate network and separate cabling is kind of a thing that you know we were used to from like pre-IP building security systems and building management systems. Yeah, but even um, even just whacking them on a VLAN is is nine tenths of it, right? Yes, I mean that certainly goes goes a long way, and not giving them public addressing and you know not leaving it lying around everywhere. Um, but yeah, as you say, a lot of people don't necessarily listen. And, and a lot of these systems are not, quite often the, the ownership of these systems is not super clear. Like if you're in a building where the building management operates the surveillance systems or the building access control systems, and then, you know, you're, you're leasing, you're a tenant, right? You don't necessarily have direct control of those. And similarly with, you know, like port facilities or industrial plant or whatever, you don't necessarily, like some of that stuff's outsourced, some of it's contracted, like the division of responsibilities can be quite complicated and opaque. And I think it may be less that people didn't listen but that you know solving these problems is not always as straightforward as you know you just do it yourself yeah i mean i know uh that you've uh, had some experience with owning cctv cameras to do stuff like <laughs> yeah. grab people's passwords right mm -hmm, and even mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. do um even do some recon and look at environments where cables go uh, yes. that sort of thing in a data center like i know that that's something that you've done so i'm guessing this is something that you bumped into when submitting findings on reports like this which is you need to do this with your cameras and then the um and then the people saying well we can't because that's the strata corporation or whatever who runs the building yes yeah and even like doing scoping you know if we're i don't know one engagement we were scoping for a red team and you know it's government agency and we can't the, the government agency can't authorize us to attack the building systems because they're owned by a third party and at that point we have to take access to cameras access to door controls out of scope for what we i think we would have otherwise done so you end up with results that don't represent the reality of your attack service and obviously we've seen organizations compromise through building management systems air conditioning uh, yeah, was it one of the TJ Maxx or you know one of the big credit card things back in the day? You know, was also through the aircon you know remote management system. And as a, a red teamer, we're not going to be able to be authorized to do that. So you. So I, I guess the up. summary, the summary of what we've just spoken about here, which is this Boa, 
you know, web server discontinued in 2005 that's absolutely everywhere and trivially ownable uh, could be in your environment and there's nothing you can really do about it because, um, yeah, you don't have control over the networks that these devices are attached to. Yeah, and I guess that's why we layer on all these other controls and, and you know, end up with, you know, Rumble trying to find all of the cameras in your network and all the <laughs> yeah. versions of everything so that you have some hope of at yeah. least spotting it when it does go wrong. Because, yeah, prevention turns out pretty hard. Well, and I think another issue is that a lot of this equipment that contains these vulnerable web servers is essential stuff that you can't just rip out, right? Like, so, I, you know, I do feel like they're the advice that has always been given, which is to try to architect this stuff sensibly, I feel like that's going to get listened to a lot more now, especially with all of the malicious activity we're seeing out there. Uh, yes, agreed. And, you know, certainly with governments being a bit more forceful about, you know, how this stuff actually does get hacked, right? Because I mean, so much of how we architected security 5, 10, 15 years ago was completely unrelated to real attacks because there weren't any that really mattered and now they do matter and we have to respond to the real world. Now let's talk about push whoosh. Uh, this is this is a great this is great because we got a, we got two scoops to talk about. First of all, we got a Reuters report which looks at a company called Push Whoosh, which says, "Hey, we're an American company. We're as American as apple pie, and I believe they're incorporated in the U.S. as well. But all of their staff happen to be based in Russia, right? And they make some <laughs> sort of like SDK or something for for mobile apps. And the U.S. Army was using it. Um, the CDC was using it. So all of their staff are based in Russia. Reuters fa- found out, I believe, you know, the army ripped that code out of their their mobile apps uh, and whatnot, which seems I, I would think quite prudent." But then Brian Krebs has taken this this scoop one step further and actually linked one of the key people behind this company to malware. So, <laughs> like, it's gone from like, oh, that's probably bad to, okay, that's that's very likely bad. Talk us through this one. Yeah, so this company, Pushwish, uh, is begat from a company that turns out to be kind of based in Vladivostok, Russia. They present themselves as in the US. They've got, like, fake LinkedIn profiles claiming to be in Washington, D.C., which they said was just for, like, SEO and marketing, not for not for convincing people that they were, as you say, as American as apple pie. Um, but, yes, one of the guys that has done work for this company, Pushwish, was also a contract developer for... Um, the Pinsir Android Trojan way back in back in the day, and Krebs actually interviewed him uh, back in 2013. Um, and the guy basically said, "Look, I'm a contract dev. I got these requirements. Uh, you know, pretty clearly it was supposed to be a Trojan, but you know, hey, I got paid, did my job, did a good job. You know, yeah. Uh, and yeah, this guy Yuri Yuri Shmakov uh, now also has worked for Pushwish, and you know, overall, um, well, actually, one of the, one of the other things I thought was really interesting is that this Pushwish. Uh, framework was doing the remember we talked a few weeks ago a few months ago maybe about um if you are using browsers from inside mobile apps the mobile app can kind of set up the runtime environment of the of the browser such that it can inject javascript and, and do things in the content that you're browsing so push push was doing this to track links that you were clicking inside their uh browser that spawned from inside this app so in the context of an army app you know, it's going to shell out, you're going to connect some other army services and it's in the position to record all keystrokes and, and links and so on and so forth and was sending them back uh, to Push Whoosh for analytics, but also perhaps quite useful for other things. And the fact that this has come up in a few stories over the last few months, uh, I think is interesting. Um, just because for most people, the browser looks like a browser. You don't understand that launching a browser from an untrusted context is kind of like downloading the browser from somebody else. Like mm. it's like if if instead of using Chrome, 
you know, your app said, hey, you need to go download random other browser from the app store to you. Like, that would feel weird, but people don't understand that spawning a browser from an app is that's actually what's happening. I don't know what the suggestion here is, but I guess I would like my, my mobile operating system to tell me that using the browser in this way is unsafe or to, or to provide some way to list yeah, what it's injecting into Yeah, but are you seriously the... suggesting we go back to JavaScript warnings? Because that, uh, there I was know. a time when we did that and know, they didn't yeah, do anything, yeah. right? So I understand that that's a feature that you may want, but yes. I don't know that it's a feature that most people are going to be able Probably to not, benefit right? Probably from. not, right? Probably not. And actually, I wonder if the iOS lockdown mode limits the ability to inject JavaScript. I was literally into... just wondering that myself <laughs> as we're sitting here. But look, that's yes. a... Maybe someone who knows can tell us. Right? Yes, maybe it, maybe if Ivan Kerstich is listening, you know, drop us an email. Let us know. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but you know, like that that just ties off our sort of supply chain discussion this week. And I just do think it's interesting that between you know the US and UK governments essentially banning Chinese cameras, so that's a hardware issue. Then you've got this ancient uh, web server that's popping up everywhere and enabling all sorts of attacks. Uh, you know, and then you've got some SDK that's being developed in Russia, winding up in US Army mobile apps. Yeah. And like <laughs> unscrambling this omelet is going to be really difficult yes. uh, for the West. And I think it's going to be really, really difficult for the illiberal uh, block as well, Adam. So, you know, this idea that they can ditch Microsoft Word and they're going to wind up in a better place. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a complicated and very big topic. Yes, and not at all easy and also very urgent, right? I mean, the, the changes in the relationship between countries, like this is a big deal now and I don't know how we're going to solve it. Mm. Let's move on and talk about some ransomware stuff. And uh, we've got two stories here about uh, islands in very sunny, nice places that are suffering terribly from ransomware attacks. One is Vanuatu and the other is Guadeloupe, which I believe is a, a French territory in the Caribbean. And... Yeah, I mean they they having they having major drama in Guadeloupe. Let's talk about this one first. Yeah, so they uh, the government, a bunch of government IT systems uh, have been ransomware, and they're in the position where you know the, the basic functioning of government uh, is somewhat impeded by the lack of of available computers and working computers and systems. Um, France is like shipping people over to help deal with it and try and recover some things, but um, yeah, there's been um, the government's you know warned people of um, of being contacted over WhatsApp or whatever else, but also yeah, like basic function uh, of their government uh, is somewhat impeded. And in Vanuatu, we've got hospital staff using pen and paper, and government staff using pen and paper because their systems are still suffering. This has been ongoing for a while. This attack. Yes, uh, Australia was helping out and trying to, uh, you know, come up with some some ways to restore service in Vanuatu. But you know, that's a it's you know, seeing a whole nation's government crippled by ransomware. Obviously, the the Vanuatu government has said they're not going to pay ransoms, uh, but you know, they're in they're in pretty big trouble. And then there's been some suggestions that uh, you know maybe Vanuatu's political you know positions have been a thing that's caused them to be targeted. I'm not sure how much. You know, yeah, I'm uh, not. I'm not buying into that too much. This looks like ransomware to me. But look, the it, reason it does. the reason I wanted to talk about this, right, is because, you know, when when the Australian government announced that ASD was going to go after ransomware crews, uh, you know, people would ask, oh, well, what are they going to just leave crews alone who uh, don't touch Australian systems? And I mean, they're definitely going to attack the crews that do target Australia harder. But, <clears throat> and here's the thing. You know, having Vanuatu, which is a country that's very close to Australia in the Pacific, having it suffer like this is not good for regional stability. It's it's just not a good thing, right? So I can certainly see that the Australian government will be interested in trying to 
solve this problem for its regional neighbours. Okay, so I think I think we're getting to the point where people in the government here are starting to think about ransomware as not just being our problem, but as being a sort of regional security issue, right? And it's also if you can if you can take steps to make this problem go away for some of these smaller countries, um, that buys you a lot of diplomatic brownie points. Let's just put it that way. And of course, China has interests in the Pacific, um, as does Australia. And there's a there's a there's a big sort of uh, competitive thing playing out there right now. It's 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 quite complicated. Um, it's politically extremely complicated. But, you know, what I'm getting at is this is a golden opportunity for the Australian government to also do something for the Pacific nations here, uh, which also serves Australian interests. And I think this is how it's going to play out. Yes, yeah, Australia's Pacific Minister Pat Conroy was in Vanuatu and he said that it was, uh, quote, <clears throat> very important that the Pacific family works together uh, to make sure all of our systems work properly. So, like, that seems like a pretty reasonable signal that... Uh, you know, Australia is going to try and take some, uh, you know, take the opportunity to help. And, yeah, I think it would be a smart move for everybody. Yeah, I mean, Australia's been on a big charm offensive through the Pacific uh, since the change of government because the previous government was not uh, doing a particularly good job, in my opinion, um, in its relations with Pacific nations. And that created an opening for China to come in and say, hey, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to build you a nice, shiny new mobile phone network. And Yeah, how about those belts and roads? <laughs> yeah, maybe we could build a port over here. What if we put some soldiers over here for training exercises, <laughs> you know? So yes. so the Pacific is, is, is uh, somewhere where Australia definitely has an interest in... Um, uh, people <laughs> liking it, right? So, um, yeah, anyway, I just think that's interesting. So this idea that these Western countries uh, are just going to look out for their own interests, I just don't think is accurate. I think people who work in foreign ministries uh, see this as an opportunity, to yes. be honest, um, to actually do something positive that's going to reflect well on our country in the region. So, yeah. And I, I think a lot of this stuff is going to spread to countries like Indonesia as well, to our north. So I think I think gradually ransomware is going to be seen as a regional security issue where the uh, countries that are best positioned to tackle it in that region will be expected to do so. Yep. I, I, and I think that would be a good thing. Yeah. Now we've got uh, two reports here to discuss. First of all, we've got a report from Alexander Martin at The Record, which says that the BlogXX, you know, Reval ransomware site disappeared. Uh, for a while, uh, after the Australian government announced that ASD would take action against the uh, the people who did the Medibank thing. So it did. It went down for a while. But, and this hasn't really hit the news yet, it's back. Uh, and there's two new dumps from BlogXX or, or Reval. One is a US school district and the other one is a company called Sun Knowledge Services, which is a, a provider of services to the US healthcare industry. So uh, certainly it looks like if there has been action taken by ASD against Reval, it hasn't been a knockout blow. No, it does seem that they are still out there operating. I mean, their blog site has been up and down, um, you know, beyond just the, as reported originally, it was down for a while, it came back, went away again, came back, went away again. Uh, hitting reload on it at the moment, says 403 forbidden. Oh, uh, that's and good. Quite, and I and wondered, quite... because now it's Australian office hours, and I wondered if they could <laughs> do something. So Catalan was, um, you know, I asked Catalan to look into this because I've been keeping an eye out for just Reval announcements, and he actually said to me, yeah, this site is so slow. He said it was just, you know, borderline unusable. So you can't reach it now? No, nah, it's 403 Forbidden has been all morning. Uh, yeah, so, nice. Yeah, maybe, as you say, it's business hours in Canberra. So uh, <laughs> game on. <laughs> game on. Anyway, uh, you know, we're going to keep an eye out. Um, we're going to watch Reval. 
a little bit more closely than we would otherwise, just because there has been that announcement from the Australian government. So um, it actually makes them worth paying attention to from our perspective for a little bit. Um, and also in Australia, uh, Australia has published a huge new uh, privacy bill, which has upped fines for, like if you're running deficient controls and you get owned, the fines have been increased from 2 million to 50 million Australian dollars, which I think is a pretty clear message. Don't you? Yeah, it's like what, 50 million or 30% of your turnover, whichever is higher. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see whether they would ever try and leverage that against, you know, overseas entities that are doing business in Oz and so on and so forth. But yeah, either way, a big change and certainly getting some attention from, you know, executives and boards uh, of companies in Australia, um, you know, watching Optus and Medibank and everyone else uh, having a rough time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would expect this will boost spending a little bit, but then we're back to the same old problem, which is capacity constraints in the industry. Not enough yes. trained people to actually perform the uplift, right? Yeah, I mean, can confirm that there has been uh, an increase in sales. <laughs> yeah. The so-called Sandworm crew is apparently dropping uh, malware. Uh, sorry, excuse me, dropping ransomware on uh, targets in Ukraine. Adam, this is a story by uh, Darina Antoniuk. From the record. Yes, uh, Samuel and Crew is dropping some relatively common garden kind of ransomware. Uh, in this case, it's Monsters, Inc., the movie, themed. Uh, so that's nice. They've made some effort there. Um, it doesn't appear that they're actually trying to collect ransoms. It just looks like kind of distraction for locking down systems and, and breaking stuff in Yeah, Ukraine. I mean, that was that was going to be my question. Is, is this actually ransomware or is this just proper disruptive attacks that are designed to look like ransomware? Yeah, the assessment seems to be that it is just disruptive attacks, you know, kind of couched as ransomware, maybe provides some distraction but yeah i mean the ongoing skirmish in the computers of ukraine um i you know i guess this is pretty pretty work a day for them and uh, adam last week we spoke about these cabinet office level uh meetings that were happening in the united kingdom around ransomware and talking about how there hasn't really been much uh, political attention paid to the issue it looks like that's changing Yes, we've seen a, a joint committee made up of members of the House of Commons and the House of Lords in the UK, which is looking into the scale of the ransomware problem. Uh, they had some testimony from uh, Ollie Whitehouse from NCC Group uh, talking about you know the scale uh, and um, amount of work involved in dealing with ransomware in the UK. Um, obviously, we talked uh, about the reporting last week uh, of the number of COBRA committee meetings that were related to ransomware, and the questions are coming up about how, you know, what results what effectiveness what the government has actually managed to do as a result of its work so far and i think everyone is a bit concerned that there hasn't been enough progress on on ransomware and data extortion you know you were just talking about data extortion there and you know it's my feeling that it could have worked in the case of medibank right when you've got sensitive health information that uh we really don't want to see out there uh in the end medibank decided not to pay but some of these data extortion attempts in my mind, are just really silly, right? So we've seen now lots of instances where companies have been able to repel a ransomware to attack, but they haven't been able to stop the exfil. That sort of seems like where we are in the average enterprise right now. And we've got the Canadian food giant Maple Leaf. This is another Jonathan Greig story over, over at the record. They were able to restore their systems because they had a business continuity plan and whatever. Some information was exfilled and now, you know, they're being shaken down. Otherwise, they're going to leak this data. Now, can you imagine, Adam, the board of a food company agreeing to pay criminals millions of dollars so that their emails don't get leaked? I mean, it does seem it does seem a little bit ridiculous. You know, maybe the secret proprietary, I don't know, like 
maple leaf biscuits recipe or something. Maybe there's some, you know, like industrial secrets about how to do it. But no, I can't. I can't really imagine. I mean, unless they're particularly juicy emails. Like maybe no, someone knows that they've been, you know, doing some corner cutting that, against regulations or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like substituting sawdust into the biscuits. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> or something like that. And they know they're going to get snapped uh, by the pesky ransomware crew. But no. But in I, that case, they deserve to be exposed, Adam. You see, so. <laughs> but I, I, I think the point I'm making is that um, as a crime type, I think data extortion is 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 a, a pretty weak one. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, governments are not going to pay. And then, you know, the medical examples, I guess, have kind of backfired. Like in the case of Medibank, you know, that, that <laughs> yeah. has not gone well, right? They pushed that one too hard. So like that line between data worth paying for, but data not important enough to then cause you to get, you know, ISD released. <laughs> yeah. Like that seems like a smaller window than perhaps people understood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they always say kidnapping is the stupidest crime. And like, I, I feel like data extortion is kind of up there, up there with it. I just don't see this turning into a thriving criminal ecosystem that's going to generate a lot of profits. But anyway, yeah, data extortion, I just don't see as the next big hot thing. Uh, Alexander Martin also at the record. I've got to say too, the record's done a terrific job uh, over the last week with its with its coverage of all things InfoSec. Um, but yes, Alexander Martin has reported on an Interpol operation that has netted uh, 1,000 arrests. Uh, and this is into, like a lot of these things like romance scams and investment scams and just, you know, that typical sort of internet fraud. Um, so that's good to see some progress there. And uh, we reported last week on uh, the seizure of iSpoof, which is this online service that allowed you to uh, make calls and SMSs from other people's numbers and whatever. Um, something like a hundred, over a hundred people have been arrested just in the UK on various fraud uh, offences. So looks like there's a lot of um, law enforcement activity uh, uh, around some of this, you know, workaday internet fraud, Adam. Yes, and it makes sense to go after you know some of the of the points that are shared between frauds, like this you know phone spoofing, sending messages from short codes. Like that's a really useful tool for all sorts of online crime, and that's you know a, a great place for law enforcement to target. The Dutch police found that this particular ice proof was was hosted uh, in the Netherlands, and so they're able to kind of swoop in, you know, pre presumably find a bunch of you know customer records and numbers and logs and things, and then use that to expand out. So you know, law enforcement, especially in Europe, does seem to have been doing a pretty good job. Yeah, and apparently the Brits are going to let everyone know who received a call or a message from Icepoof as well. So that's an interesting yeah, follow-up. Yeah, um, And we've got another one from Alexander Martin uh, at the record. And there is some bit of malware going around Southeast Asia right now using USB as a uh, vector. This is an espionage uh, campaign. And... Um, are, they ta are they targeting an air gap network? Like, why, why are they using USB, Adam, in, in this espionage campaign? Well, like, I, I guess the answer is because it works. And, you know, as we've gotten better at securing perimeter networks, obviously, you know, perimeter has been a, a lot of focus lately. Multi-factor auth has been a lot of focus. You know, if you're just trying to get your workaday, you know, espionage done, you know, USB key drop, not so bad. And what's really funny about this for me is that, you know, hackers, pen testers, we've been doing USB key drops for ages. And the joke has always been that, like no actual attackers will ever do this and it's just pen testers looking for the easy way, you know, so they don't have to go find some hard bug and, and hack the old fashioned way. Um, and now, you know, adversary simulation can do USB key drops because actual adversaries are doing it. So, 
it worked for pen testers and it's, it's it's the case of you know pen tester techniques being then used by the attackers we're meant to be simulating like a la mimi cats and and so on when, when our tooling is better so um that that's pretty funny but yeah now at least we have some good examples of this being done. And this particular campaign is targeting a bunch of stuff in the Philippines and the Philippine government. You know, China and the Philippines do have some arguments about some islands, so that kind of they makes sense. They do, yep. And yeah, yeah but, it, so. but it is bleeding out into some other countries as as these USB sticks are inserted into various computers on business trips, right? <laughs> yes, and exactly, yeah, yeah. This was the thing that got Stuxnet snapped as well, right? Mm-hmm. Which is spreading beyond its original target environment. I don't know if I've ever... Exp- I'm sure I've had this discussion with you before, Adam, but, you know, everyone thought that when Stuxnet happened, Israel and the US had someone inside Natanz to actually plug in the USB drive. But I've got an alternate theory, um, which I think is a much more plausible idea of how that malware actually got walked into the building. It was very clear that one of the engineering firms that did work at Natanz on developing all of the PLC software, etc., was compromised. They were they were internet connected, right? So they had all sorts of, you know, Western APT crews all up in their stuff. <laughs> and in my mind, that's how you could exfil the design of all of the logic controlling centrifuges from that company, which was connected to the internet. And if you wanted to drop a payload in there, you had access to the workstations of people who regularly commuted to that facility and plugged things into its network. So the idea that you needed an insider, that always struck me as very odd. Have we had that conversation before? We, I, think, I think we have had that conversation. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm 100% on board with your explanation. It makes a heap more sense. And, and it's so much know, more low risk. Like why use, why use spies in the real world when you can just own the engineering services company and get them to unwittingly walk your payload in with them? Yeah, no, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, I, I remember sitting in an airline lounge in like Helsinki once seeing a, a SCADA engineer from Siemens with like on a Siemens corporate laptop, you know, and you could see the, you know, like HMI and the, the various other bits that he'd been working on at some point, you know, on his desktop because I'm stooping over his shoulder because I'm nosy. Uh, <laughs> and then he's just sitting there playing flash games in his Internet Explorer, you know, yeah. <laughs> on, on his SCADA maintenance laptop. So, yeah, yeah so it wasn't. Like, it, that's what I would do. It wasn't the spy walking it in, you know, it was Colonel Mustard with the remote shell um, in the engineering <laughs> firm, I think. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Now, look, you know, Stuxnet, blast from the past, as is increasingly, uh, it's looking like a blast from the past. WikiLeaks, mate. Uh, WikiLeaks, yes. WikiLeaks.org, not looking so good. Um, there's this story here from Daily Dot that's pointing out that the WikiLeaks website doesn't really work that well anymore. And in fact, after I read it, I did go to WikiLeaks and I tried to search just, you know, some generic keywords and nothing came back. Like the search is broken. And it also points out that Defend WikiLeaks, uh, the domain for Defend WikiLeaks, uh, now points to a Vietnamese online gambling site, I believe. (laughs) And just, yeah, generally, basically because Assange is in the clink and, you know, the organization never really seemed to be very sustainable beyond him it looks like WikiLeaks is just falling over, kind of the way we expect Twitter to in coming months. Yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, you can't even submit stuff to WikiLeaks anymore. Like all of the mechanisms by which you could give them docs are not working. Well, I mean, that say, happened. Uh, I mean, originally that happened early on when the guy who wrote the submission system like rage quit and took it with him, and it took them years to get that <laughs> happening again. But yeah, their, their their replacement for that now is is dead as well, right? Yeah, so no, WikiLeaks doesn't seem to be in a functional state anymore. And you know, as you say, like it it it's kind of legacy <laughs> legacy yeah. tech in the same way that Twitter is. So, yeah. yeah. Not with a bang, but a whimper uh, mm-hmm, is the way exactly. that I put it on Mastodon. 
Uh, real quick, I don't think we need to talk about this too much, but the European Parliament uh, declared Russia a sponsor of terrorism and then its website went down because Killnet DDoSed it, right? Like barely worth a headline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, Adam, let's talk about how uh, people's desire to see naked bodies manifests itself as a security risk. And uh, in this case, in this case... Uh, you know, it's got a bit more sophisticated than saying click here to see the the, the naked bodies. Uh, but in this case, what we've got is a piece of software, in quotes, software, uh, that claims to be able to remove TikTok filters so that you can see the images uh, prior to the, to them being filtered and turned into like a, you know, a silhouette or, or whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, it's malware. Uh, TLDR, it's, uh, it's malware. Um, yeah, big surprise. <laughs> big surprise. Um, the reporting was that something like 30,000 people have showed up in the command and control system for this particular piece of malware. Uh, there's a trend <laughs> on TikTok at the moment where there's like an invisibility filter that AIs the background behind you and then overlays it over the outline of your body so that you're kind of invisible um, and close Clothing is not invisible, so even people, you know, take the clothes off. Invisible filter, you can't see it. Everyone's extremely titillated, uh, and yeah, then someone shows up in the comments thread and says, "Hey, you can remove these filters if you could download this particular piece of software. Look at this." And then they've got some, you know, like videos that they've faked up uh, so that they've applied the filter to a video they've already got the nude people in, so it looks like it works, etc., etc. Et and yes, lots of people get compromised. So if you're on TikTok, uh, don't only not just beware of the, <laughs> the Chinese Communist Party. You also have to beware of uh, of people trying to uh, trojan your box with filter defiltering.exe or whatever. They're, they're, so. are they, they've got this on like GitHub repos, and GitHub keeps taking them down, and they keep just coming back under different names and stuff. So they're like they're actively doing this right like this is this is a real whack-a-mole uh situation yeah well i mean clearly it's working if they've got thirty thousand shells in their uh, in their you know c2 their discord c2 <laughs> yeah and they're going to be using them to ddos gamers they don't like or something yeah yeah, probably you know, probably that level of that level of criminality but still i just think it's funny that you know some things just stay the same don't they they certainly do Oh, before we go, uh, we had a little bit of feedback la- from last week's show adam uh someone pointing out someone was very miffed adam uh, that when we spoke about uh, the lack of tooling uh, to for, for organizations to have insight into what UEFI firmware uh, their companies are running, someone got very cranky and uh, tweeted at me that, um, you know, how dare they not mention Eclipsium. And Eclipsium, of course, this is what they do. Um, mm-hmm. But that said, I can't see too many companies at this point standing up uh, entire projects just to improve you know, just to get insight into the security of their firmware. I think this is software that's going to be mostly popular with high security organizations and and the types of organizations that are likely to be targeted by the types of crews that do get in your UEFIs, which is mostly APT crews at this stage. Um, but yeah, there is tooling coming for this. And I think that is worth pointing out. So fair cop. Yes, yeah, no, it, it is, it is. And uh, like you're just kind of right that the amount of organizational inertia required to build a project, get a piece of software in for what is a, you know, in the big picture, a relatively niche thing. But as you say, you know, this stuff trickles down uh, and, you know, everyone else will be trojaning UFAIs, you know, every time they compromise anything, you know, in any year or two. So, you know, Eclipsium stock will probably go up. I don't know <laughs> how, that, how that works. So there you go. If you really want to um, go out there and get get some insight into what's happening in your UAFI, uh, you can hit up Eclipsium. No business relationship between us and them whatsoever. Um, but Adam, that's actually it for the week's news. Thank you very much for joining me. It's uh, fun as always. And we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks, Pat. I'll talk to you then. 
That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Jake King, a security tech lead at Elastic. And uh, Jake's here to talk about Elastic's latest threat report. I've linked through to that report in this week's show notes, and uh, here's what Jake had to say about it. One of the biggest things I noticed up front, uh, you know, coming into Elastic and, and joining the Elastic team from CMD and and, and kind of seeing the, the 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 broader range of hosts that we actually observe threats for, uh, one of the biggest things that I noticed was just a prevalence uh, of, of a lot of the Linux-focused attacks that we were seeing. So, you know, in the report, we, we kind of talk about the percentile of, uh, you know, endpoints that we've observed malware and threats on. And I think, you know, almost 40% uh, came from Linux. And what what really blew me away with that stat was, you know, coming from a Linux-focused, you know, side of security, I've always spent time thinking that is my world, but it's such a small part of the attack surface in an organization. And then kind of looking at some of the stats that came out of this report was just like a point of reflection to say, hey, we actually had some things right. And it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of refreshing to see some of those numbers actually be pretty material to the stats. Well, I mean, waiting, waiting for, pro, you know, waiting for common Linux malware has almost been like waiting for Linux on the desktop, right? Like <laughs> yeah. it was just that thing that never sort of materialized. And it's been, I guess, interesting for you to then go into a company that's covering Windows hosts as well and go, oh, actually there's there's heaps of malware around there for, for Linux. But, but that said, it tends to be on the lower end of sophistication. I mean, there are some, there's, you know, like BPF door and some interesting stuff for Linux these days, but most of it is like dumb crypto miners and stuff, right? <laughs> Yeah, it it definitely is, and I think the 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 ratio of kind of what we see is is exactly what we would expect. You, you see the the low hanging fruit attacks. You see a ton of stuff that is just um, you know common off the shelf threats that 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 kind of plague the internet. The background radiation, I've heard it called, but you know when when you think about. Um, you know, what's actually impacting business. We saw some really interesting stats as well. I know um, I did a piece earlier this year for the Elastic Security Labs post um, or the Elastic Security Labs, uh, you know, publication, and it was on BPF door uh, and just the prevalence of how it's used and, uh, you know, did a ton of research on how sophisticated some of those payloads are becoming, but how simple in contrast they are to Linux, uh, to, to Windows payloads. And it was just really interesting to see that that actually you know, come to come to fruition. You're right though. A, a lot of the basics are still kind of being leveraged on Linux and, and especially in cloud. And I guess we, we do have a bit of broader visibility there and the reports kind of reflected that as well. You know, I, I like to think that, uh, when you, when you put together a report like this, you'll, you'll learn a, a ton of really interesting tidbits, but it's, it's, it's often pretty, you know, confirming of a lot of the things that we confirming think Confirming what day. you think. Yeah. yeah. And as much as I yeah. say, oh, well, it's mostly crypto miners. I mean, in the case of Linux production servers, yeah, it's going to be crypto miners. In the case of IoT devices, it's going to be Mirai. And in the case of email uh, security gateways, it's going to be stuff like BPF door, right? Like, so, you know, yeah. generally, if you, if you are handed a login to a Linux system and told that it's compromised, if they tell you what type of system it is, you're going to be able to guess nine times out of 10 what sort of thing compromised it, right? Pretty much, yeah. And I think that the more, you know, the more we learn about these class of threats and kind of talk about it, I think the more adversarial behavior is going to change. We're starting to get things locked down on these on these systems. You know, we're, we're not just ignoring the logs and just funneling syslog into a, into a pile and kind of checking it out later. We're actually observing some of the threats on these hosts and, and trying to react to it, trying to prevent it, trying to stop it. And, and, and you know, I think that's, 
that's definitely something that, uh, you know, we're going to be following up in, in subsequent reports as well. You know, we, we want to see how this changes and how it matures where we, you and I've been talking about this for years. Um, you know, even when we were, when, when CMD was, a, a you know, twinkle in the eye of a lot of the security companies out there. One of the things that I was, I was always pretty bullish on was just, you know, actually seeing some of these threats mature and, and, and look, we'll, we'll inevitably as observe that over. I mean, over I mean, it's, this, it's this weird situation, right? Where you're an anti-malware, you know, play essentially. Right. Um, yeah. But you always get excited when something cool comes along, right? Like BPF yeah. Door got everyone super excited because it's sort of validating, um, yeah. but it's and it's interesting. But yeah, it is just funny where everyone's like, "Come on, give us more good stuff." Yeah, it's it's um it's definitely uh you know you don't you don't want to cheer for the bad guys to do uh, better things, but you, you know it is it is interesting to see when new tactic tactics and techniques are being used, and I think you know when you when you look at what they're actually trying to achieve and what they're trying to do on the other side of it. It's, it's, I mean, it's pretty clear. The objectives yeah. aren't really changing that much. And, and I mean, I, I mean, I, as you said, it's interesting. The, the thing that I find interesting about, you know, the state of um, Linux security tooling, right, is stuff like yours. It's getting deployed into the production environments. You know, we're seeing some, and, and, and you know, being used uh, as part of, you know, container builds and things like that, right? Mm. We are seeing some pure player Kubernetes security companies out there that are showing some promise. So it seems like all of that dev effort has gone into production environments. It is the IoT stuff and the blinky light boxes, like the email gateways and stuff. That's the area where, well, I mean, how do you address that risk, right? It's pretty yeah. much just shrug emoji. And I, I, have you done any work in trying to shoehorn your agent onto some of the blinky light boxes? Because I'd imagine you might be able to. But I, then again, most companies aren't going to bother even if you could. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to one of the problems that we had, uh, you, you know, the, when, when we were when we were building out our Linux sensor at CMD, uh, you, you know, looking at compatibility is always one thing that you've got to consider. Yeah, you, no, you've got to do a custom build it? for the Barracuda it, it, and a custom build for exactly. the this and a custum build for the that, yeah. And you, you oh, know, what about our, our Wi-Fi yeah. access points, which are running Linux? Do we do do we ask CMD for yet another custom build that'll work on that? Yeah, well, I, you know, on the, on the other side of it as well, are you introducing risk by, um, you know, changing the way that vendors set up that, that, that system in the first exactly. place? Exactly, so, like you might install your agent and it breaks updates or something, yeah. right? You or, know? yeah, it st stops an update occurring or, or, yeah. or prevents a, a network, uh, you know, kind of, you know, a component of, you know, talking back over the network to, to, to fetch an update or, or notify a team of a specific risk, uh, you know, from doing what it says it's supposed to do. You know, I, I, it's not something that the team is focused on directly. And, uh, you know, ha having said that, a lot of the work that we've done at Elastic has has focused on the endpoint. A lot of the, the work that I'm, I'm doing on the current team that I, I work within focuses on endpoint. But, you know, we still have the traditional SIM solution and, uh, you know, we're focused on that as well. And so ingesting data from blinky light boxes is something that we've done, but is something very different. Yeah, I see what you mean. You're going to you're gonna catch it other ways. You're going to catch yeah. it via maybe, yeah, the big old pile of syslog that you That's, happen to yeah, be pumping you've into gotta, your <laughs> Sometimes you've got to do it. You know, it is it is the, yeah. the lesser of a few evils. But or even, or even NDR in that case, right? Like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I think, I, I think the more we, we look at uh, how a lot of these threats are evolving, it has presented itself to be a, a, pr a pretty interesting uh, situation. Elastic has some pretty unique observability ca characteristics. And, and I think the, those tools have, have really proven their worth over the last couple of months. Seeing this report come out and, and seeing how powerful the stack is and, and obviously how powerful the endpoint is has been an awesome, awesome part of uh, putting this data together. Yeah, I mean, you've, um, you know, the report's got a lot of detail in it. 
And, you know, you've got like a whole page here on persistence techniques and, you know, most of it is like boot or log on auto start execution, which is, yeah, <laughs> yawn. It's the yeah. obvious way. But like what, what other little things did you observe in Attacker Tradecraft that you might have found a little bit surprising? Or was it really just a case of most of it confirming what you already knew? You know, I think I would love to say that there was, you know, kind of this, the smoking gun and, 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 and something amazing coming out of this information. But, you know, really for us, I think it was very validating of a lot of the controls that we've been putting in place. A lot of the detections we've built, a lot of the mechanisms we've used to, uh, you know, to, to detect what, you know, the bad guys are actually doing and, 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 and get controls in front of it faster you know there were there were definitely some interesting findings over the year and 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 throughout the year one of the things that led into building this threat report was elastic security labs so labs was a, a component of the security research group um, you know a small team of folks that wanted to put out deeper research into different payloads um, you know we wanted to talk about ISTID, we wanted to talk about you know different payloads you brought up bpf door something that i wrote up about but you know one of the interesting uh you know, components of, of that was we, we did a lot of deep research into payloads and we did a lot of deep research into the, the, the characteristics, the techniques that, that adversaries were working on. And I think, you know, one thing that, that did stand out is, you know, there, there are small things changing over time, but it's really kind of just going with the flow a lot of the time. You know, they're, they're just trying to avoid, you know, defaults that Microsoft's put in place to make things a little bit harder. Macros, for example, kind of, uh, you know, changing the game as to how people are actually exploiting a system. But, you know, it has been pretty validating to know that the industry uh, has has followed along how attackers have behaved and predicted it pretty pretty closely, as we could yeah. probably expect. Yeah, it can't all be solar winds, can it? <laughs> it you can't know? all be that way. No, it's can't a shame. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's re, it, it, it's good, but it's also a shame. You know, like when are yeah. we going to see some? When are we going to see some cool stuff again? It's been a little while. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, I mean, when, when you think about that, though, you, you've got to think, you, where are these advanced payloads today? And, um, you know, building stronger research capabilities, bring, building stronger, uh, you know, abilities to research and identify threats within an environment is just going to be part of every large security organization's way to stay in front of the, the adversary today. And, and, you know, Elastic's no different to that. We've been building a really strong team of researchers and defenders uh, putting together some really awesome payloads and signatures to 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 be able to prevent some of this stuff and and you know I think it is it's 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 nice to see that we're staying on top of it but you do kind of stump, sometimes stay awake at night thinking hmm have we missed something where where do we need to spend more time you know Jake King uh, pleasure to chat to you my friend always good to talk to you and uh, yeah we'll chat again soon thanks again Pat that was Jake King there with a chat about Elastic's latest threat report. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Elastic for its support of the Risky Business Podcast. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.